Hi, everyone. It's Ken here. This episode deals with the F word, and we use it a lot. So please exercise listener discretion. April 26, 1968, Paul Robert Cohen walked down the corridor of the Los Angeles County Courthouse on the corner of Grand and First. He stopped outside Department 20, which in those days was a municipal court courtroom, hearing misdemeanors and minor crimes. He took off his jacket and folded it under his arm, and he went into the courtroom to watch what was going on. He was a witness in a case that was going forward. While he was in there, Several officers at the Los Angeles Police Department entered the courtroom and asked the judge to hold Mr. Cohen in contempt. The judge refused. Cohen hadn't done anything in his court. But when Cohen stepped out, he was arrested by the police officers. Paul Robert Cohen hadn't said anything inflammatory. He hadn't threatened anyone. He hadn't made a speech or held a sign. Nobody reacted to him with a threat of violence. But that day, in that courthouse corridor, he was wearing a jacket. That jacket. It had a slogan, Stop the War. It had two peace signs, and it had another slogan. I said the word, the big one, the queen mother of dirty words, the F-dash-dash-dash word. What did you say? Uh, That's what I thought you said. Cohen's jacket said in big, bold letters, Fuck the draft. This, in April 1968, was a cause for tumult. As every judge to touch the case carefully noted, there were women and children present. The word fuck was still taboo. Dropping it in public was still like dropping a bomb. Just 20 years before, the literary bomb-thrower Norman Mailer wrote a searing story of about how war dehumanizes us, called The Naked and the Dead. He covered the blood and the mud and the shit and the senseless death, but he didn't say fuck. At the request of his publishers, he said fug, F-U-G. His characters spend the novel saying fug this and fug that and that fugging thing over there. By 1968, people were starting to ask questions about whether that made sense. They were starting to ask, why can some words be used and not others? What makes one word worse than another? Here's infamous and fearless comic Lenny Bruce. I would like an honest equation from any, at least, grammar school graduate. Is the word son of a bitch less obscene to you than motherfucker? Really? Is it the fact that a Catholic president called all businessmen son of a bitches in a Jewish comic relates motherfucker? If you're interested in the meaning of obscenity, I'm less obscene than a president. If the word motherfucker stimulates you sexually, you're in a lot of trouble. Paul Robert Cohen was convicted of disturbing the peace for wearing his fuck the draft jacket in a courthouse. His case wound up telling us two things. First, You do have a First Amendment right to say fuck. And second, when you're in front of the Supreme Court, you really should. 
I'm Ken White, and this is Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from Popat.com, brought to you on the Legal Talk Network. This is Episode 9, The F-Bomb. case wasn't complicated. It was straightforward. He was wearing a jacket that said, fuck the draft. And he admitted he wore it deliberately to express how he and his friends felt about the draft and the Vietnam War. He was convicted under California Penal Code Section 415, which made it a misdemeanor to maliciously and willfully disturb the peace or quiet of any neighborhood or any person by offensive conduct. He agreed to a bench trial and was convicted and sentenced to 30 days in jail. Before the California Court of Appeal, he argued two key things. First, that a mere vulgar word can't be disturbing the peace under California's statute. And second, that it violated his First Amendment rights to convict him simply for using the word fuck. The Court of Appeal rejected both arguments. First, it said that Cohen's jacket was, and I'm quoting here, below the minimum standard of propriety and the accepted norm of public behavior. The court said that women and children were present, and that the word he used is not used to espouse a philosophy, and would vex and annoy his audience. Therefore, the court said it was provocative of violence within the meaning of the Disturbing the Peace statute. As to the First Amendment, the Court of Appeals cited our old favorite— fighting words. Some words, the court said, are just understood to lead to violence. He can use other words, better words. The defendant has not been subjected to prosecution for expressing his political views. His right to speak out against the draft and war is protected by the First Amendment. However, no one has the right to express his views by means of printing lewd and vulgar language which is likely to cause others to breach the peace to protect women and children from such exposure. In other words, you have the right to free speech, Mr. Cohen, just not to say that word. A few years earlier, the California Court of Appeal decision might have been an obvious, even an uncontroversial result. But the times, they were a-changing. I talked to Melissa Moore, who wrote a book called Holy Shit, A Brief History of Swearing. And I asked her, what was the social status of the word fuck in 1968? That's a real point of transition, I think, because, you know, the word fuck had been around for hundreds of years. But up until sort of World War I had really been 
you know, something that people would say in private but would never make an appearance in public. And in World War One, World War Two, with soldiers coming back and writing memoirs about their experiences, the F word really got more and more notice, although even then it was often expurgated and, you know, F dash 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 or Norman Mailer said fug, you know, he didn't print it in his stuff. But by the 60s, you know, with the sort of hippies, anti-war movements, they were, you know, rebelling against all kinds of things. And one of the things they were rebelling against was their sort of parents' attitude towards bad words. And so these words were suddenly making much more of an appearance in public. Paul Cohen didn't give up. His case reached the United States Supreme Court on February 22, 1971. Now, 1971 was already quite different than 1968 culturally. But the Supreme Court was still not a place where you would expect to hear people say fuck. Chief Justice Warren Burger tried to convey, subtly, that the parties would not have to repeat the language from the record. Listen carefully, because this 50-year-old audio is a little grainy. I might suggest to you that, as in most cases, the court's thoroughly familiar with the factual setting of this case, and it would not be necessary for you, I'm sure, to dwell on the facts. Ha! Nice try, Mr. Chief Justice. But Melvin Nimmer, Cohen's attorney, was not having any of that. While walking through that corridor, he was wearing a jacket upon which were inscribed the words, Fuck the Draft. Also were inscribed the words, Stop War, and several peace symbols. Now, judges are very concerned with decorum in courtrooms. And so one of the things the justices focused on was whether there was any evidence that Cohen was wearing the naughty jacket in the courtroom and whether that was the basis of the conviction. But he didn't, and it wasn't. Uh, I don't he, think that arises in this case. You said he did not wear this jacket in the courtroom. That is correct, Your Honor. The advocates in the court were also very interested in whether the jacket constituted fighting words. You remember fighting words from Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, our first episode. The notion that some words, by their nature, provoke a fight, and the government can therefore punish them. But are words on a jacket like words uttered to somebody's face? Cohen's lawyer argued no, because unlike fighting words, the words on the jacket aren't insults aimed at someone. Is, is your view of fighting words different than, uh, do, do you think fighting words are different than insulting words? No, Your Honor. Uh, that's precisely my point. I think they're synonymous. Uh, and, and hence, these are not fighting words because they are... It, 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 well, perhaps I should be more specific. Insulting words, insulting the hearer, insulting the, word, the person to whom the words are addressed is what the basic concept of fighting words refers to. Uh, as in Chaplinsky, damned racketeer and fascist. Uh, here, there was no attack of the hearer. There was an... A, a, opposition, verbal attack, if you will, on an institution, the selective service system, but not as against any of the viewers uh, of this side. And so, hence, we, we submit this does not at all come under the Chaplinsky fighting words concept. Well, let's go back to Rochester. Some of the judges also wanted to know more or less the same thing the California Court of Appeal wanted to know. The same thing your mother would want to know. Why can't you find a better word? The reason was that the power of the word, its transgression conveys something. Well, now, what does this have to do with communicating a, a dialogue or discussion of public issues? Your Honor, I understand the argument can be made, and uh, perhaps you, by implication, are making it. Why did he have to use these words? Why couldn't he have simply said, I hate the draft, 
and have got for, put forward the democratic dialogue equally as well. And we have a several-fold answer to that. First of all, on a super, more superficial level, if you will, if this appellant had used the more laundered form of expression, if he had said, I hate the draft, then the self-governing people, the people who must make decisions based upon freedom of speech and what they hear from that freedom of speech, would be somewhat less wise than they are. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by that, the mere fact that this young man chose to choose a word which many people would no doubt find disagreeable, and no doubt, no question of that, the mere fact that he chose to use that word is important data for the self-governing people to know, to know that he feels this deeply about this subject. If, they don't, if, they, if he had used the laundered ex form of expression, I hate the draft, they would have been ignorant to a degree. The attorney for the government tried to convince the Supreme Court that this was a case about conduct, not speech. The idea was that Mr. Cohen didn't say something. He wore a sign and displayed it. The court was skeptical. It was offensive conduct. Correct. Conduct by displaying the... And the uh, conduct was what? Walking by wearing the jacket and walking in the corridor. Well, wearing the... Was it... The conduct was precisely what? Displaying the sign on the jacket. By the fact he was walking with the sign displayed on his jacket. Well, the walking wasn't, a, wasn't offensive conduct. Just the walking, was it? Walking with the sign. Merely walking, no. No. And uh, so what was the conduct? Displaying the sign. Displaying. Yes, his conduct of displaying the sign. The words. Yes, where Which other persons were, were present. Painted on or sewn on or whatever it was. Right, they were jacket. painted on. His jacket. Correct. On June 7th, 1971, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that Paul Robert Cohen's act of wearing the jacket was protected by the First Amendment and that his conviction must be overturned. The court rejected the government's argument that California was trying to regulate conduct, not speech. The only conduct, the court said, was the fact of communication. There was no showing that Cohen was trying to incite anyone or that he succeeded in doing so. The conviction rested on the content of his message. It rested on the word fuck. This, the court pointed out, did not fall into an established exception to free speech. It wasn't fighting words because it wasn't directed at any person as an insult. It was an incitement because there was no evidence that was used to provoke observers into lawlessness. It wasn't a case of subjecting people to involuntary speech like a noisy sound truck because people could avert their eyes. It all came down to the question of whether the government can punish the word fuck because many people find it offensive. The court said no. Here's what Justice Harlan wrote. How is one to distinguish this from any other offensive word? Surely the state has no right to cleanse public debate to the point where it is grammatically palatable to the most squeamish among us. Yet no readily ascertainable general principle exists for stopping short of that result were we to affirm the judgment below. For while the particular four-letter word being litigated here is perhaps more distasteful than most others of its genre, 
it is nevertheless often true that one man's vulgarity is another's lyric. Indeed, we think it is largely because governmental officials cannot make principal distinctions in this area that the Constitution leaves matters of taste and style so largely to the individual. Justice Harlan went on to explain that the power the state was seeking here, the power to punish words because they're offensive, is dangerous and difficult to limit. Finally, and in the same vein, we cannot indulge the facile assumption that one can forbid particular words without also running a substantial risk of suppressing ideas in the process. Indeed, governments might soon seize upon the censorship of particular words as a convenient guise for banning the expression of unpopular views. We have been able, as noted above, to discern little social benefit that might result from running the risk of opening the door to such grave results. Or, as Lenny Bruce once put it, take away the right to say fuck, and you take away the right to say fuck the government. Looking back, Cohen versus California was significant for two uses of the word fuck. One, obviously, was Cohen's, but the other was his lawyer's willingness to use the word fuck in oral argument before the United States Supreme Court. A bold move, but did it make a difference? Alan Garfield is a professor at Delaware Law School, and he thinks so. He wrote a law review article titled, To Swear or Not to Swear, Using Foul Language During a Supreme Court Oral Argument. His point was that Mel Nimmer, Cohen's lawyer, said fuck, and prevailed on the argument that the government could not punish that word. But, you know, there's a wonderful story talking about, you know, his courage in doing that, you know, because that was the best strategy for his client. There was a story about how flying back to Los Angeles, his son was on, who was 16 years old or something, was on the plane with him. And Nimmer apparently told his son that he thought that as soon as he used the F word in the Supreme Court, you know, the guards were going to grab him and drag him out of the court. So that was brave. And I. But and, Professor and Garfield points out lawyers who don't confront the justices with the words at issue in a case have tended to lose. In the Pacifica case, which was the next case that really teed this up, the case about. George Carlin's filthy words routines, you know, the seven words you can't say on the radio. The lawyer didn't use any of the foul language, and he lost the case, you know. So as I always tell my students, you know, the moral of the story is when making oral argument, make sure you use foul language. (laughs) Professor Garfield is only partially kidding there, because in defending the right to use the word, it's actually very important to say the word. It only comes up when your client is being punished for having used foul language and you're trying to make a First Amendment argument that that is an unlawful abridgment of speech. I mean, there's lots of fact patterns where somebody might use the F word, but it's in the context of making a threat. You know, I'm going to fucking kill you, you know, making a defamatory statement, you know, you know, so-and-so was sleeping with this fucking, you know, red-headed Russian spy. But if they're being sued for defamation or because they made a threat, it's not because they used the F word. But in this case, if Cohen had said on his jacket, I hate the draft, 
there wouldn't be any case. And for Nimmer to not use the F word in his oral argument, he would in effect would be conceding that it's such a toxic, radioactive, taboo word that the government would be justified in suppressing it. So he really, to overcome that taboo, you know, he realized he needed to use it. But not everyone learns this lesson. As late as 2012, when the Supreme Court heard arguments about the FCC's power to punish Fox because Cher and Nicole Ritchie swore at the Golden Globe Awards, you can hear oral arguments that are perfectly sanitized of the very words that are at the heart of the case. They don't want sanitized language. They want to hear the, the, uh, the, all those other words. Sexually explicit or excretory activity. Activities or organs. The expletives. The S word, the F word. The fleeting expletive. The F word, the S word. Depictions of erotic activity. Highly vile and lewd. Seven dirty words. But it's included. One thing notable about the opinion in Cohen versus California is that Justice Harlan said fuck right there in the opinion, in front of God and everybody. Justice Blackman in his dissent did not use the word. He referred to it as an absurd and immature antic. Supreme Court cases several decades later by different justices sometimes use dashes or asterisks rather than use language like that. It shows that our feelings about words don't go in a straight line. It also shows how driven the Supreme Court can be by individual foibles and personalities. Here's Melissa Moore again. And also just the individual personalities. You know what I mean? I, I, I just, I love the Cohen versus California opinion. It's just so beautifully written. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I don't read too many opinions. I'm not a lawyer, but I've read, you know, many of them about obscenity and, and indecency. And it's just, he's such a good writer and just, he's, I don't know, I just, I just love it. And then the, yeah, the, you read the 2009 one, and it's all the obscenities are they're redacted. You know, they don't even print them, and it's like, oh, we're not. You know, we we can't even the legal record can't know that. You know, Nicole Richie said cow shit. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of silly. The Supreme Court's ruling in Cohen was controversial. Critics saw it as coarsening society, undermining the moral and religious values that were the basis for the republic and encouraging degeneracy. Charles Keating, President Nixon's appointee to the President's Commission on Obscenity and Pornography, filed an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to rehear the case because of the grave moral issues involved. The court declined. No doubt it was the resulting moral chaos that led Keating to his central role in the savings and loan scandals, the collapse of Lincoln Savings and Loan Association, and his eventual conviction for wire and bankruptcy fraud. Fuck was a powerful word. But did fuck stay powerful? Does the ubiquity of casual profanity make words like fuck powerless? Do they eliminate the emotive impact that Cohen convinced the Supreme Court was so important. Melissa Moore points out that when one word falls, another tends to take its place. 
fuck and shit and those kind of sexual, scatological words replace religious words, you know, by God, by God's bones. And they're now in the process of being replaced by sort of epithets and racial slurs. What most people would consider to be the, you know, the worst words in the English language, like the N-word, things like that. In this series of podcasts, I'll be telling more stories behind important First Amendment decisions. If there's a case you want to hear about or a First Amendment question you'd like answered on the podcast, drop me a line at ken at popat.com. Thanks for listening. You can find documents and cases mentioned on this podcast at popat.com or legaltalknetwork.com. If you like what you heard today, please remember to rate us in Apple Podcasts or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Lastly, I'd like to thank our participants, voice actors, producers, and audio engineers for their participation. My guests, Melissa Moore and Alan Garfield. Our voice actors, Christopher Anderson as Judge Alarcon, Jordan O'Brien as Justice John Marshall Harlan II, Lacey McKeon as Yo Mama, producer Kate Nutting, executive producer Lawrence Coletti, and last but not least, music, sound design, editing, and mixing by Adam Lockwood. Excerpts from the oral argument in Cohen vs. California provided by Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. See you next time for episode 10, I Know It When I See It. expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, POPAT, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer, please. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.